0: I will be filling in for Ben while he is out today, but we will be continuing in our passage in Philippians. We'll be in chapter 2. The way this thing works out is, you know, we do expository preaching, right? We go through the book of the Bible one verse at a time. And uh, so when Ben's going to be out, verses just happen to fall upon whoever the guy is that's going to fill that in. Uh, And sometimes when those verses fall to you, you feel completely unqualified uh, to preach a certain passage. And I have to admit... Because of the content today, not because it's difficult or hard to understand, but just because I find myself so guilty of this one sometimes. Um, it really is difficult to preach. So, we're going to be talking about complaining today. Um, so, if any of you did that this morning, I'm sorry. It was Paul, not me. Um, and in beginning the sermon today, I want to take just a minute to set the context for this passage. If you were here last week, you remember that we ended on a strong reminder that we are to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. Now, a proper understanding of this verse does not teach that we can work our way into salvation, rather that we are responsible for the active pursuit of Christ-honoring living in the process of sanctification. We are even commanded that this pursuit should involve fear and trembling. This should serve as a reminder that the attitude of this process is not one of pride, but of a healthy respect of offending a holy God. Finally, to close this idea, Paul inserts that God is the one who works in us to transform out of our depravity something that can bring God pleasure. And as was taught last week, this is not a, a fairy godmother kind of swooping in and waving her wand and instantly changing everything about us. Actually, it's a pretty grueling process, that takes place over years and lifetimes and it doesn't actually even end in this life. This is often much to our own dissatisfaction. We would much rather just arrive than to endure the travel. Just a couple weeks ago, I, me and my family, we drove to the Tennessee mountains. Um, and I realized, like, my barrier for driving is about two hours. <laughs> if it's outside of two hours, it's not, I don't need to see it. It's not that good. There's nothing outside of two hours of Pitt County that could possibly interest me that much. I learned that two weeks ago. But, right, that's us. We just want to be there. We don't actually want to endure the travel, that, what it requires for us to get there. Because this is true of us today, and even true for the Philippians back when Paul was writing, Paul writes this seemingly simple reminder that actually has some pretty serious ramifications. And if you've read ahead, you know what we're going to talk about. But in our world today, we are a consumer-driven society, right? Everything we do is about the satisfaction or the experience of the customer. Think about it. Before we ever go to a new restaurant, before we ever buy anything, what's the first thing that we do before we ever leave our house? we Check a Yelp or a Google review, right? Or an Amazon review. Now, I recommend that every one of you waste at least an hour reading some of these. But I happen to bring two examples for us to read this morning. This is what a review looks like for the Big Fun Beach Ball. We took this ball to the beach, and after close to two hours of pumping it up, we pushed it around for about ten fun-filled minutes. That's when the wind picked it up and sent it hurtling down the beach at about 40 knots. It destroyed everything in its path. Children screamed in terror at the giant inflatable monster that crushed their sandcastles. Now, this was my personal favorite. This was the Niagara Waterfall Diamond Glass Speakers running at a cool $39,000 on Amazon. I bought these to put in our newborn nursery. We've been playing classical music because it's supposed to stimulate brain functionality. It seems to be, to work stupendously. The child is only eight weeks old and has al- already told me that I'm a freaking moron for buying them. <laughs> Somebody else says they the same product, the Niagara Waterfall Diamond Glass Speakers. I was quite despondent to see them shipped in simple wooden and cardboard boxes as if these were coming to mere peasants. They should have been packed in hand-stained mahogany shipping containers and wrapped tightly in baby panda for softness. (laughs) But that's who we are as a society, right? We have become so concerned about the experience of what we feel and what pleases us that we really could care less about what we say to other people. Uh, Much like our passage last week, the root issues of today's verses grow out of self-centeredness. Because we so highly value our own pleasure, whenever our expectations aren't met, our first reaction is to complain. In fact, if you read about the current generation, you will find much criticism aimed at our dissatisfaction with our circumstances. However, this does not just plague the millennials of today. Rather, it affects every generation, even in this room. And in fact, if you read the Bible much, it plagues every generation, period. The older we get or the older I get, the more I realize that I just tend to justify or legitimize my own complaints and be critical of others when they do. It is important for us to see that the attitude of complaint does not come from our circumstances, but rather it comes from a heart issue. So before we begin reading our passage this morning, let's take a moment to pray. Father, we are thankful for the opportunity to gather as a church to hear your word preached. We are thankful for your word and how it challenges our hearts. Father, I pray for us this morning as we are going to talk about a topic that you inspired Paul to write. And Lord, this is something that is not uh, simple for us to hear, but it is something that we have heard over and over and over. It has become trivial in our minds, and oftentimes we just think that it doesn't even apply to us. So, Father, I pray this morning that for everyone in this room, myself included, that we would open our ears and our hearts once again to hear the truth of your word, and we would be willing to accept its teaching and how it fits and applies to us. In your name we pray, amen. Let's begin reading in Philippians chapter 2. We will begin in verse 14. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish. Uh, particular section of verses, we're talking about uh, grumbling. Grumbling is a word that actually sounds much like the action it's doing. If you were to hear it in the original language, it literally sounds like someone's making the sounds of a complaint. It is an onomatopoeic word. I read that. But I didn't come up with that. It literally sounds like what someone's doing there. This is an emotional response to the rejection of God's sovereign plan. Think about it. When someone begins to grumble about their circumstances and what we know already about God being sovereign, when someone listens and starts to complain, what is that? They are finding fault. They are pointing fault out at the circumstances that God has given them. And because God has created us as emotional beings, we often cannot hide the baseline emotions that we are thinking and feeling. If you've been married or if you've been dating for any length of time, you know exactly what I'm talking about. We're emotional, right? And you begin to ride in the car and things didn't go well. You didn't leave the house on time. You're going to be late for church. That never happens to anybody but me, I'm sure. And that conversation kind of ensues in the car, right? And the conversation usually is pretty quiet. But there's definitely a conversation going on, right? And somebody usually uh, gets up enough nerve to look over at their spouse and says, Hey, is there anything wrong? You seem kind of quiet. And in that response... There is a whole paragraph that's communicated in one word. Nothing is wrong, right? But we're emotional, and our emotions communicate exactly how we feel. We can complain without even saying a word. In fact, complaining is as old as the earth is. If you look back in the Garden of Eden, that's where one of the first complaints ever came about, Adam and Eve, after they had taken of the fruit, God came into the garden. Let's see what God has to say to them in Genesis chapter 3, verse 9. But the Lord called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I have commanded you not to eat? And the man said, the woman whom you gave me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. You see, what, you see what Adam did there? He didn't just accept the blame of what God was asking. He said, God, the person that you gave, you are responsible. You have a hand in this. He issues a complaint to God. Next we have in the book of Exodus and Numbers, the children of Israel. These were some tough people. But the children of Israel in Exodus chapter sixteen, verse two and three, they begin to complain. They says the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. So two things about this verse. God had literally and miraculously delivered them from slavery and bondage in the land of Egypt and was delivering them to the promised land. And in the process, all they could do was complain. you see that for the children of Israel? That's the first thing. The second thing, I don't know what a meat pot is, but I want to find out because that (laughs) sounds interesting. Next, we see the children of Israel again in Numbers chapter 20, verse 2 and 3. Now there was no water for the congregation, and they assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron. And the people quarreled with Moses and said, Would that we have perished with our brothers when our brothers perished with, by, before the Lord. Why have you brought the assembly of the Lord into this wilderness that we should die here, both we and our cattle? This isn't just individual complaints now, this is a collective complaint. They've assembled themselves together and they are starting to, as a group, complain against Moses and Aaron. Complaining happens all the time. It can even be lighthearted complaining. Let me illustrate this by uh, something that I hear just about every Sunday. It is a tradition in our family. On the way to church in the mornings, we stop by McDonald's and get a biscuit before we come. I hope we're not the only ones who do that, but we do. And what I've realized, there's something that takes place in the backseat of my car every time on the way once we get our biscuits. The wrappers are unwrapped and true this morning, it happened, there is an immediate critique of the biscuits. Because there's not just, it's not just a McDonald's biscuit, right? The good biscuits are the ones that are lighter, apparently, not the dark brown biscuits. Now, I know people who order dark brown biscuits on purpose. They're called psychopaths. <laughs> when we begin to complain about whether the cheese is melted enough or not, they compare each other's biscuits, these are my sons, to each other's to see who has the better one. It's complaining. It is in our nature. We do it all the time. We don't even realize it. That is grumbling. Next, there is the word that Paul uses called disputing. Disputing. This is an intellectual attack on God's motives or plans. Now, this is a step further than the emotional response, right? An emotional response is something immediate that happens. We can't even control it almost. It's a reaction. But then, after we take time and think about it, we develop the intellectual thoughts that develop into a complaint. And we must see that an expressed dissatisfaction with our circumstances displays a heart and contempt for a sovereign God. When we do this, we allow our circumstances to become even bigger than our God is. And what I mean by that is, of course, we know that God is bigger than anything in our lives, any problem that we could ever have. But when we begin to focus on our problems so much and we bring it so close, we lose sight of who God is and we eventually try to make God small in our lives. An inward attitude of grumbling usually builds itself into an outward and open attempt for God and even can develop into a lifestyle. You will not be able to control this. Once it starts in your life, it will only pick up momentum and get worse and worse. It's imperative that we see that a pervasive nature, the pervasive nature of a lifestyle of complaining, it will continue to grow like a cancer that is never satisfied, and eventually will cause us to sacrifice our joy and faith on the altar of self-satisfaction. God is trying to bring us peace and joy in this life when we trust in him. And when we complain, we work against that because we want to be self-satisfied. However, Paul says, rather than an attitude of discontent, we are called to live a different life. In the quest to work out our salvation, as in verse 13, we are to be working towards Blamelessness, you can see that in verse 14. Do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless. This is not an arrival or a destination. This is something that we will never achieve in this life. So don't think that's possible that you will just stop sinning one day. But rather, Paul is a characteristic of how we are to live, how we are to look in the process of sanctification, how we are to be growing. Paul is teaching that we should live lives that accusations of sin do not stick. This is not about sinning secretly, but rather living a life that others would not assume sin upon us because they know we live differently. The idea of being blameless is not an arrival, but other people say, no, that's not something that person would do. I know him. He lives a life that's devoted to God. I know that sounds super spiritual, but that's the idea here. He also uses the word innocent. This is describing a life unmixed with sin, unadulterated by the world. Much like the first adjective of blameless, we must be allowing God to work out his good pleasure in our lives for this process to even begin to take place. If we're not careful, we can become so consumed with seeking our own pleasure that we will allow our emotions and intellect to communicate to God and to communicate to ourselves a dissatisfaction with the sovereign plan and the circumstances that he has elected for us to bear. In our pursuit of comfort, we can assume an attitude that restricts our ability to conform to the pleasure of God. Do you see how that's possible? We began to complain so much we're convincing others, but at the same time we're convincing ourselves that our complaints are, are satisfactory, they're justified, they're legitimate, that we have reason to take fault with God's plan. We began to change the way that we look at him, and it changes our ability to conform to his pleasure. So I hope you can see that complaining is not something that's just simple. It's not something that just the kids do in the back seat. It's something we all do. It's in our nature. Complaining is dangerous to us, but it is also dangerous to those who we are witnessing to and those who are witnessing us. Paul uses the phrase there just after blameless and innocent in verse 14. He says that you may be blameless, innocent children of God. Many times in Scripture, we see believers described as children of God, right? That's not something we're unfamiliar with. This is a beautiful picture of parental love that God shows towards us. However, this title can also be one of the greatest challenges issued to believers. If we properly understand what it means to be a child of God, then it should cause us to be challenged in our lives. We are to live as sons and daughters who who represent a magnificent king. Um, here in the South, uh, names are a big deal, right? My name has always been Josh Harris. Josh has always belonged to me, but Harris has always belonged to my family. And I was reminded of this, and if you grew up here in the South, you've probably heard something like this before too. Uh, but before I would go out, before I would go stay at a friend's house, I was always reminded to remember who I belonged to. And I can remember like maybe on one occasion when I started to act out of line, and uh, that was probably the only time that ever happened. Uh, but someone would come up to me and say, you better remember who your father is. You better remember who your family is. And instantly I would change my course of action because I didn't want to bring shame on my father. And I didn't want to bring shame on my family name. But I didn't want to deal with the, uh, the punishment that would come with that process either. It's important for us to remember in the same line of thinking that we do not belong to ourselves, but we belong to him. And so we must live accordingly because we represent the family name. Paul references a picture of the Old Testament sacrificial system when he says that we are to be without blemish. This is the idea of, that would have illuminated in the Philippians' mind of a sacrifice for sin. This would have been a lamb. This couldn't just be any sheep out in the field, but rather this had to be a lamb of a certain age. It had to be a lamb that was spotless. It had to be clean. It had to be healthy. And this is the picture that Paul wanted to paint in their minds when he was describing how they were to live life while God was working out his good pleasure in them. Blamelessness was the direction that Paul was describing for the Philippians. If we are not careful, we cannot allow or even justify our right to complain and derail the blameless attitude that Christ desires for us to have in all things. And when we do that, others are watching. Because we have claimed the name of Christ We stick out in this world, and people are watching us, and we have to be aware. Next, Paul paints another picture when he describes the world with light and darkness. He says, In the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. He describes the world as crooked. None of their motives or paths are straight. It does not take long to be around the world before you begin to hear the negative attitudes that infest their hearts. We all know that one guy, right? That one person, you walk into the office in the morning or you go to work, and for the first 10 minutes, you hear the new batch of complaints from the night before about everything that went wrong in this guy's life. And if you could figure out somehow just to lock this guy out, it would make your day better. But they're crooked. They cannot see the world in the right light because their minds are not transformed by God. He also describes them as twisted. Their desires are opposed to the cause of Christ. Sinners living without Christ are altogether dark. They are unable to do or achieve anything good in God's eyes. Be reminded that no matter how good your heroes are or how moral you think your family is, without Christ, we are the lambs that are rendered unsatisfactory for a sacrifice that is pleasing to God. And this is the generation that we live in today. And it's the same type of people that lived back in the day of the Philippians. We're surrounded by darkness. This is Greenville. This is ECU. This is where you work. For some of you, this may even be your family. But now that we can see the backdrop of the utter darkness that surrounds us, we can understand how important it is that we are to shine as lights in this world. We cannot take this phrase for granted. Have you ever been anywhere really dark I mean, no light. Uh, me and my boys, we like to, uh, we like to hunt. And uh, that means usually we're walking into the woods in the dark or we're walking out of the woods in the dark. And I can promise you, I carry a backpack, I carry a gun and all that. There is nothing more valuable to me in the dark than a flashlight. Now, some guys like to try to sneak in with this little pin light, a little red light, this, you know, just so they can barely see their feet. That is not me at all. I want the high beams on. I want to know headlamp, And two flashlights. I want to know everything that's looking at me, and I want to know what's all around me. I don't want there to be any doubts when it's that dark. But when Paul was speaking to them, he wasn't even referring to flashlights. He would have been communicating about the lights that the Philippians would have known. Things like the sun and the moon and the stars. If you've ever been lost in the dark, there are a few things that are more comforting than the sun coming up over the horizon. Or if you're trying to walk around in the middle of the night, having a nice full moon to light your way. For the Philippian church, these lights would have been reference points or guiding lights that they would use to direct themselves or navigate even in the dark. We are to act as the same reference points in today's dark world. We are not the destination or the goal, but rather we are the lights that help guide the way or point to the proper destination. And that is, of course, Jesus. He is the standard. He is the destination that the world is searching for. And we are to be living lives that point towards him. Unfortunately, some who claim the name of Christ often act as lights to guide those who are looking on, but many times the light that they cast guides the onlookers away from Jesus by the nature of how they live their lives. And if we are not careful, complaining will do this. If we are surrounded by a dark world and we claim Jesus as our Savior, we are labeled as a follower of Christ, we are then shining as a light. And if we live lives that are full of complaints and negativity, and dissatisfaction, we're not pointing towards him. Just like the gravity of the responsibility of being called a child of God, there is also a responsibility of being a light in this world. Let us be sure that we live lives that are worthy of pointing others to Jesus, that we are blameless, that we are innocent. And let us be watchful, that we do not become so self-consumed with how we need life to change to fit our comforts that we lose sight of who we belong to or how we're even representing our Father. Let me just give a, a quick warning here about complaining. If you think that your complaining is, negatively, is not negatively affecting a friendship or, you, or the other party somehow seems to enjoy this or you both kind of feed off of it, then you are engaged in a relationship that is cancerous to your joy and your health as a believer. My best advice is to repent to that person, reform your actions, and if nothing changes with them, make a gospel-centered decision to remove that kind of person from the people you allow to influence you. They will do nothing but bring you down. Do not surround yourselves with people who are full of complaints. And in turn, don't be one of those people also. Next, we have to see here in the passage, Paul says that complaining is dangerous to those who lead us. Verse 16, Paul says, Holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Paul seems to deviate from his standard practice and implores the Philippians to live this life so that he may be proud of them in the day of Christ. Now, this is not an egocentric plea from Paul to boast in himself. Rather, he is imploring that they live lives that prove that his labor was not worthless, was not spilled out for no reason. He describes himself as a runner when he uses the phrase run in vain. Only his prize for running well is seeing the children of God bring glory to the Father. He was not running to bring pride to himself, but he wanted to bring glory to Jesus. And he was imploring that these Philippians live lives that did that. Paul speaks the idea of a drink offering in verse 17. He says, Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. This is one of the final steps that you could do in a sin offering. After the animal was carved up and placed on the altar, they would pour out some wine that would offer a sweet smell that was supposed to be accepting to God. Paul was speaking of emptying himself in the same way for the sake of this church. He was willing to rejoice in the fact that his life could be sacrificed and his desires could be sacrificed and what he wanted could be sacrificed for the sake of aiding in the sanctification of these Philippian believers. So, do we actually recognize the danger of complaining? Or do we see this as something that's trivial? And too common to actually fight. Because I can tell you, that was my view of complaining. I didn't really see this as a sin issue. I viewed it as something that you could just comically do, like an Amazon review. And I didn't recognize that there are some serious causes and effect to complaining. Are we aware of the effect a divisive spirit has on our relationship with God and our thoughts about him? You know, one of the things we say here at Integrity is what you think about God Is the most important thing about you. And if you're thinking about God as constantly being invaded by your complaints, eventually you will convince yourself that God is responsible for some of the dissatisfaction in your life. Have you ever considered the effect your negativity is having on your wife or husband? Perhaps your friends or a roommate, someone you're discipling those in your small group or in your church. It's very easy to be in regular conversations and become comfortable with other people, and you don't even realize it, but the first thing that comes out of your your mouth is negativity and complaint. We must be aware that many times complaints like they were in the Old Testament are leveled at authority and even the leaders of a church. And by doing so, we spread disunity through the church, and that is unacceptable in God's eyes. So how do we do this? How do we live this life that's blameless? How do we live a life that's innocent, that's accepting as a children of God, that's a light in this world? How do we live that life acceptably? If we've not realized it by now, I pray that you do, that you would take time to consider that much of our conversations can be sprinkled with complaints. And Paul does give a crucial key to help root out a critical spirit and the devastation it can cause. I I hesitate to even present it this way because it is something that we hear so often that we quickly trivialize the idea, but I pray that we would take time to recognize the gravity of what Paul says. And with a full heart, I want to echo what Paul said to the Philippians. He said to hold fast to the word of life. It is God's word that can cleanse our selfish and dissatisfied hearts. Hebrews 4.12 says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of the soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. It is his word alone that has the power to change us. There is no form of behavior modification that can conquer the motivations of our hearts. They will be continually wicked unless we allow his word to change us. In fact, God has intentionally left us with the need to cling to his word to deal with our sin. We can't fix it ourselves. You see, by reading his word, we are exposed to a more clear picture of who Jesus is and what his expectations are for us. And in that light of a pure, Holy, clean Jesus, our sin should melt. In fact, one of the longest chapters in the Bible contains 176 verses. And each verse refers to the importance of God's word. Let's just take a look at a short section of Psalm 119. We'll begin reading in verse 9. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word with my whole heart i seek you let me not wander from your commandments i have stored up in your word your word in my heart that i might not sin against you blessed are you o lord teach me your statutes with my lips i declare all the rules of your mouth in the way of your testimonies i delight as much as in all riches I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. I pray that rather than trivializing this great truth, the one thing that is going to help us fulfill this challenge that Paul is giving us this morning, that we would not trivialize it. I pray that we would instead, we run to the gospel and daily allow it to examine our lives and point out the errors of our hearts. Let us pray together. Father, we are thankful for how your word challenges us. And Lord, today we have talked about something.